Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is COO Alliance member Derek Knorr, who is the COO for Spurious. Spurious is a tech startup located in Lincoln, Nebraska, as part of the Silicon Prairie, and primarily plays in the web scraping space, providing SaaS sales of its web scraping services, as well as product-based sales for the underlying infrastructure to other web scraping companies. This allows the world to make use of the vast amount of open data on the web today. Derek joined Spurious as COO in late 2019. He's accountable for running the business operations and growing both top and bottom line earnings. Derek wears dual hats as head of sales and data analytics, as well as a product owner for the main product line. Prior to Spurious, Derek grew through a variety of projects and roles over a decade with Deloitte Consulting. He focused on the U.S. federal market and is one of the few people in the world to have worked at a variety of intelligence community agencies before switching over to the civilian sector. Derek focused on data management and analytics and led large IT systems modernization efforts for a number of years. Outside of work, Derek enjoys camping and traveling with his wife and four children, ages 7, 9, 11, and 13. He grew up on a farm, so he loves getting away from the computer to work outside on his acreage, mowing, landscaping, gardening, and woodworking. He's also an avid reader, typically reading a book a week, and he's proud of the Spurious Reads program at work where they will buy any book for anyone on any team for any reason. I love that idea. Derek, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Thanks, Cameron. It's great to be here. Tell me about the book program. How was the, the what was the impetus for that? Uh, I'm actually really proud of that one. It was my idea when I came in. Uh, I think it was probably like the second or third month after I joined Sprius. We were looking at different ways to just improve the overall employee experience uh, try and enhance our core values and make it a, a better place for people to work. And we've done a lot of the typical startup stuff. Like we've got a ping pong table upstairs. We got a pool table. We've been known to have a keg in the fridge as well. Uh, but we wanted to look at something that people could use to improve themselves on a personal level. And, and both the CEO, Neil and myself are avid readers. And we thought this would be a great idea to offer people any book that they want to. And, and we, there's a big bookshelf behind my desk in the office that you may have seen in some of our, our previous Zoom calls. And it's starting to grow quite a bit. But if people want to keep the books, they can. If they want to bring them to the office and share with others, they're welcome to do that too. And it's it's been fantastic. We get a lot of use out of that. And do you tie in any kind of reporting on that? Like, do they do a book report after they read the book? Or is it just, if you want to read it, go for it? Uh, the latter. Yep. Yeah. There, there's no mandatory aspect of it. A lot of people do write book reports. Uh, we'll write those up in Confluence, uh, share the highlights with people that we think are relevant and uh, go from there. I, I'd say that's a small percentage of the total number of books that are purchased though. There's a lot of fiction novels and cooking books and things like that. Too. Which is great, right? I think the, the reality is you're just supporting reading and growth and personal development. And, and like you said, if they want to read a, a, a fiction book and they just want to read something for fun, go for it. We'll pay for it. It's just a nice little additional perk. Um, one of our former CEO Alliance members, Teresa LeBranche, their company used to pay for any training that any employee wanted, regardless of what it was. And they never even tried to see if it fit or tied into work. So one day there was like seven people wanted to go to a Tony Robbins seminar that was going to be like $6,000 per person. And the CEO said, yes. And everybody's like, what really? And they go, oh yeah, we'll pay for your flights too. Like we really want you to grow. 
And oh, that's at amazing. one point, they had about 200 employees at one point, but they'd spent $2 million one year on training their people. But what they realized was no one quit and everyone wanted to work there. And because they were attracting all these people that wanted to learn and they were excited about learning and they said yes to everything, people did naturally take stuff that tied into their roles as well. It was just a really cool concept. Yeah, I love that. We've, we're trying to step in that direction right now. Our development budget's a little bit smaller than that. Uh, and we try to keep things business focused, but we're also trying to be very open-minded about it. And basically yeah. if somebody wants to do something, we're trying to say yes as much as possible. So we're, put, we're, put, not to Tony Robbins yet, but maybe- yeah, You'll get there. Well, and you're a member of the CEO Alliance, so that's good. So tell me about, about uh, Spirius. Put it in layman's terms for us. What does scraping the web or scraping the world, what does that mean? And, and who are your typical clients? And, and then I guess, how could the everyday client use a service similar to yours as well? Yeah, it, it, it's, it can be a very complex environment to understand. And I've, I've been here almost two years, and I will be honest, I feel like I learned something new every day still. The, the general premise is that there's so much data on the internet today across any number of sources, whether it's government or private or commercial, and finding ways to tap into that information to make decisions, usually for commercial purposes, but not always. It could be government entities that are collecting data for um, analysis on new businesses or uh, latest trends or economics or things like that. Uh, there's a lot of different people that play in the space in terms of using the data. And the tough part is actually getting it. So what we do is we've, we've basically got two different uh, product lines, primary product lines within our company right now. One is we provide the underlying infrastructure for companies that do data scraping. Uh, so that means we've got servers and data centers all over the world. I think we're in 26 countries now. And we have hundreds of thousands of IP addresses that we lease out to different companies that are doing web scraping. Uh, and, and then on the other side of the business, we actually have our own web scraping product as well. And we, for that one, we're basically selling to businesses that don't want to invest the time and resources to build their own web scraping technology because it, it does take some time and talent and like a lot of figuring it out. And there's, there's so many different things to be aware of in terms of how websites go about um, monitoring for bots that are scraping data and, and banning them and so forth. Uh, but some of the, the, probably the best use case that people can really connect with is like understanding, you know, there are companies that aggregate travel information. So you've probably booked through, you know, Travelocity or Expedia or Orbitz or different websites like that. And I'm not giving away any customer names here, but these are just websites that collect data from other websites. So they're going out to the Marriott's of the world and the United.com and Delta and, and other places. And they they're scraping that pricing data from them in real time. Wow. And the way they do that is with IP addresses, because if you were to go to united.com 10 million times a day from one IP address, well, united.com would say, wow, that is way too much. We can't handle that. We're going to block that IP. So they get lots of IP addresses to spread the load out and, and move forward. Wow. Crazy. So is, is what, what, without telling me your revenue numbers, what percentage of your revenue is on the SaaS side versus on the, you know, doing it for, for the customer side? So on the SaaS side, on the web scraping, this is a, a new area that we're going into. So we've just started experience growth this year. It's less than 5% of our revenue. The bulk of our revenue today is by providing that underlying infrastructure to other companies that are doing this at scale. 
And okay, I, I called it. I called it backwards then. So, what what do you call that when you're providing it to the other companies? What's that called? Oh, that that's our proxy IP business. Okay, and so we're we're selling IP proxies. So basically, so that's ninety five percent of your business is giving them the underlying infrastructure. Yep, yep. And our, our ideal customers are those who are primarily playing in the e commerce space. So they're doing pricing analytics and comparisons, either for themselves or for other companies in the Fortune five hundred so that they can dynamically monitor prices on say Amazon or Walmart or other places, uh, and maybe even adjust their own prices in real time as they see, oh, this item went out of stock, we can increase our price accordingly, or hey, Amazon increased their price over here, maybe we can decrease our price and get more, some more sales that way. Like it, there's just so many different ways and it moves very, very quickly. So do you partner with analytics companies or do you sell to analytics companies? We sell to analytics companies. Yep. Are you familiar with one out of Cincinnati called InfoTrust? No, I'm not. Take a look at it and, um, or just make a note. I'll introduce you later. But the COO of InfoTrust is a member of the CO Alliance now and only in the last few months. And I coached their, their co-founders a few years ago. Um, they do analytics for a lot of the big brands, but they might be an, either an interesting client or partner for you on this that we should talk about offline. So oh, yeah, I'd love to connect. Yeah, in your bio, you said, you know, the Silicon Prairie, and, and you, you kind of made a comment that, you know, Lincoln, Nebraska is the Silicon Prairie. When I think of, you know, Silicon Valley, and I think of tech companies, I don't think of Nebraska. So is there truly a tech hub there? Or is it? And then the second part of that question is, I guess, with COVID, is it becoming more of a tech hub? Are people bailing out of the Bay Area to come home to, you know, the prairies? Uh, I don't know if I can answer the latter one directly other than anecdotally. I personally know a lot of people from California who've moved somewhere East and a lot of them actually have landed here in Nebraska, uh, which I think is a great sign. Uh, As far as the Silicon Prairie and the tech hub, we're definitely not to the Silicon Valley level yet, but there is getting to be a definite tech scene in both here in Nebraska and Lincoln, Omaha. But if you look more broadly at the Silicon Prairie, like Kansas city claims to be part of that, maybe even as far as Chicago and and other areas, like there's a lot of people that kind of want to get that Silicon into their name. Right. 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 Uh, But over the last decade, there have gotten to be a whole slew of small startup companies and there's getting to be kind of that startup vibe in this area that we did not have before. And it's, it's pretty cool to see. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just in Bozeman, Montana on a uh, hiking trip and they're calling it Bose Angeles right now. And, and it's all the people bailing out of California. I think you're going to see it's going to be easier and easier to recruit talent. Are you a fully um, office-based company or do you have what percentage of your employees are remote? Uh, so currently we have about 25 employees here in Lincoln uh, and about half of us go into the office on any given day. We've just since COVID started, we, we closed down for about maybe six weeks when COVID started in 2020. And then we reopened the office and we just left it 100% optional. Whoever wants to go in can, whoever wants to work remote can. Um, so here locally, that's about where we are. About half people are there in a given day. Um, but then over half of our team is actually international. So we're spread out around uh, Ukraine, Poland, Philippines, Malaysia, India, and Kenya now. Um, so we're, we were already accustomed to doing remote work and it was, a, there wasn't really a transition from in office to remote because we were all used to doing the video calls constantly anyway. Okay. You, you just rattled off a bunch of countries there and, and Kenya jumped out at me, which is interesting. Hit me with the countries again. Uh, Ukraine. That's yeah. where most of our tech team is. Okay. Our 24 seven system monitoring and uh, most of the developers, Poland, uh, India, Malaysia, 
Philippines and Kenya. Now, why, why are you in so many places? And is that by design? Did you just start stumbling on people in different markets? Are you using, you know, the Philippines for call center and India for tech? What's the, what's the, how, how's it all working? Yeah. So broadly speaking, you could, the Eastern European team is our tech team. Yeah. And then the folks scattered around all the other countries are part of our CS team, our okay. customer success team. And that and, would include, and Kenya would be a part of the customer service team? Yes. Yep. Interesting. Yep. Is that yep. becoming a customer service hub now? I think it's getting to be more so. Uh, one of the newest members on our team is, is from Kenya and she's just been fantastic. Mm-hmm. Great addition to culture, hard worker, understands our product and how to work with customers. So yeah, I can you definitely see us expanding there. I used to coach a, a CEO who was based in Kenya. He was Kenya, Nairobi and Tanzania. Um, really interesting culture. So what's it like working with these teams in all the different areas? What have you learned about them and how do you have to change your style or how does a company have to adapt, you know, on a Kenya versus Ukraine versus India kind of basis? It, it has been interesting for sure. Um, in my prior career before joining Sprius, I was in the consulting profession. So I, I worked with a lot of folks from India, but that was really about the only country that I worked with at that point in time. And then coming here now, it's been, you know, another half dozen countries and it's, it's great to see the different cultures and how people interact and think through things and just the diversity of opinions that people can bring to the table as a result. Uh, and that's not to say we don't have our fair share of challenges and language barriers that come along with that. Cause we certainly do. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd say for me personally, that's probably where I've kind of had to adapt my communication approach the most. Um, cause I, I, I try to tailor my, my writing and messaging. So it's a little bit simpler and that's not to insult anybody, but just to keep it in a little bit simpler English than what I typically would. Uh, cause I, I like to use big words. I, I can't lie. <laughs> well, and they, and they don't, they don't help because the reality is, I don't know what the, the age is, but I think people speak at or read at like a, you know, a grade eight level. And the longer we write and the, the bigger the words are, the less it gets and we're skimming everything. Right. So yep. can you, can you speak to any of the real cultural differences? Like, is there something you have to do? You know, one thing I learned about, um, you know, I, I coached somebody over in India, the COO of a company in India, and they had a few thousand employees. And I said, you know, you have to go tell the CEO that you're frustrated with them in this one area. He goes, oh, I, I could never do that. Like, there's no way he would ever tell the CEO he was pissed off. I mean, in, in North America, we just do that on like fuck that before lunch every day, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> you, you probably tell, is it Neil that's your CEO? Yeah. yeah. I, like, I'm sure that on any given day, you're like, Neil, you're being a dick or Neil, you're, you know, you're fucking this up or Neil, I don't like your decision. That would it's never two-way ha- street, Cameron. We yeah, both that <laughs> right, right. But that would never happen in. Th- it would happen Thailand CEO down. The CEO would absolutely tell the CEO. So, is there anything that you've learned that way that that culturally is just very different that you've had to adapt to? Yeah, one of the things that we've struggled through is uh, implementing a consistent performance management process and review cycle across the entire team. Uh, when when I first joined. We didn't really have a set cadence for when reviews or promotions or raises were done. Uh, so my head of people ops, Sarah, and I worked on putting a plan in place for how we can get into a, a semi-annual review cadence and also establish a more formal process for like what are the types of questions we need to address? How do we help people identify their strengths or development areas? Go through that. Uh, we created a, a more formalized structure for what we call functional managers. 
uh, to, to have people report to them and they do their weekly or biweekly check-ins and go through things. Um, but as we did that, it, it was, it was really eye-opening the first time we went through it, just the, the difference between like when people write up their review documents, the, the folks in America would write pages, you know, like here are your top three development areas and like, you know, a couple paragraphs on each one. Yeah. And then our folks, especially in, in Ukraine, I, I think this is probably where we've had the most challenges with this. It, it, like we'd ask for development areas on somebody else, like during our, our peer feedback process. And just, it's like pulling teeth to get anybody to criticize anybody else. And it's not, it's not that we're like looking for things to attack people on. Like we just want to figure out like, how can we help people improve and become yeah. better at what they do? And, and we get, you know, maybe one or two or three short bullets uh, as part of the written one, but even the verbal feedback, like sure. just couldn't get the same thing. So as you said, I think Americans are very willing to share that stuff. Like, here's what you're doing great, which is awesome. Here's where you can do help, you know, improve a little bit. And I'm happy to help you do that. But internationally, it's definitely a little bit different there. And I think some of it's just the, um, like the hierarchical aspect uh, concerns about, you know, criticizing either your peers or somebody above you, uh, yep. rightly or wrongly. So uh, that was a learning experience. And it, we, we don't have a master yet, but I feel like we're making progress. The, the last couple of reviews have been a little bit more smooth. And I think people are starting to understand kind of what we're looking for and how we go about things. How about the core values side of the business? Do the core values transfer across each of the regions or do you have to adapt those? Do you think? I think they've translated pretty well. So we actually just this year, uh, well, starting in December of last year, Neil, the CEO, led an effort to just reassess our core values because we had a, a structure in place that, that they'd put in, put in, I think, maybe a year or so before I joined. And it was okay, but like nobody really even talked about it. It wasn't part of what we did. And as a leadership team, we sat down and said, all right, are, do these even reflect who we are today and what we're doing? Uh, so, so Neil kind of embarked on this journey that, that ended up being probably four or five months where we did different surveys across the entire team globally. Uh, he did smaller focus groups and one-on-one -on -one conversations with people, proposed set of core values. We iterate on amongst the leadership team and we'd send those out for feedback. And it hopefully doesn't sound like it was more work than what it actually was. It didn't actually yeah. turn out to be that many hours, but it was stretched out over a period of time. We got inputs from everybody. And now we've got these core values that I feel like everybody's really bought into because they're part of that process of creating them. And so, now what we're trying to do is figure out how do we really bake these into our ongoing day-to-day -day conversations, right, right. Uh, make it part of our compensation and rewards and, and things like that. Uh, so we're, we're kind of in that phase right now. And, and even bring it right into the recruiting. How do you, how do you bring it into your recruiting you know, side of it? So you actually are turning people away who don't already live the core values and then it's easier to get them aligned with yep. the, with what, what kind of tech technology tools are you using to manage and how many, how many, you said you got about 25 people at the head office, but how many people are global roughly? Uh, so it's, I think it's like 24 in Lincoln now, and then we've got 26 internationally. So it, it's about 50, 50. Okay. And then how, what kind of technology tools are you using to, to, you know, communicate with them, uh, manage, you know, the business with, with remote teams, what are you using? Yeah. Uh, what's your tech uh, stack? So this was probably one of the hardest transitions for me when I came in is previously everything I did was an email, like all my interactions with customers, all my interactions with my teams. Here at Sprius, we barely use email at all. 
Like we've, we've, we've now started to use it for some like company-wide announcements, but otherwise everything internally is in Asana uh, and Slack. So Asana is where all the work is allocated and basically gets done and most discussions happen. But then Slack, if something's more quick or um, anything like that, like we have the, the discussions there. And then Slack is kind of our water cooler as well. Like there's just, there's a lot of fun things in Slack uh, at a company-wide level as well as smaller team uh, levels as well. So th- those are our primary communication tools. So you, then, you, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say on, on the CRM side, we use HubSpot okay. um, for our sales team. And then we use Freshdesk, uh, which is part of the Freshworks suite for our CS team for ticketing. Yeah. Freshworks is coming along. We just actually incorporated Freshworks on the CRM side, but our sales cycle is very different from what yours is. Um, you, so you joined the company in 2019, about two years ago, why why did you join, and what was it that attracted you to the company? Uh, there were a few things. So uh, I probably have to back it up about a year before I joined. Um, I think I mentioned before the interview, I, I do some real estate investing on the side, and I'd put some apartments under contract at one point in time, and and didn't actually have the money to pay for them when I got them under contract. So. I had to go out and, and find some other investors to, to join this new LLC with my brother and me. And one of those investors turned out to be Neil Amy, who's the CEO of the company. So we got to know each other through that avenue as, as partners in a real estate investment. And then over the next year, just through various interactions and conversations we'd had, uh, we both kind of realized that he needed somebody that could help run operations. And I was getting a little bit burnt out on the consulting side. I've been traveling basically full-time for over a decade, um, four or five days a week, primarily out to Washington, DC. And I've got four little kids and I was kind of looking for maybe something where I could be home more. Um, and, and the idea of helping run a company in an early phase, right in my backyard was, was very appealing. So we kind of courted for about four months I uh, had different dinners. He came to my house. I went to his office. We, we did a lot of different things and kind of talked through what that might look like, whether it was good for Sprius, whether it was good for me. And we ultimately decided that it was, uh, and we haven't really looked back since. So, so you guys had a bit of a trust um, kind of baseline already established because he was investing with you as well, I would imagine, right? That, that yep. you know, when somebody starts putting their cash on the line with somebody else, there's a, there's an implied level of trust there. Was that was that a benefit for you kind of coming in as the COO to have that trust already? I, I think so. I don't know how, how well we sustained that the whole time. Uh, in, in the pre-interview, one of the things I shared was Neil and I kind of hit rock bottom here probably about, I think probably five months ago at this point where there was a Friday afternoon where we went to a meeting and I'd taken the day off beforehand to kind of think through things, but like, I came in ready to resign and Neil came in ready to fire me. And, and we both agreed going in the meeting that we were going to see how it went and come to a decision coming out of that meeting. And I, I'm okay sharing this publicly. I've, we've shared it very, um, very much so, especially with the leadership team and, and kind of shared a lot of the details around that. Uh, There's just a, a disagreement that, that kind of sparked the whole deal. But that meeting was probably one of the most, most productive and most impactful ones of, of my working career. Um, Neil and I both have gotten into studying uh, stoicism and we kind of frame the whole discussion around different stoic principles and what it really means for Sprius and for him and for me and, and what we, what we appreciate and what we don't. 
And it basically came down to like the only thing that we weren't liking at that point in time was how we were treating one another. And we said, you know what, we can work on this. It's, it's a relationship. It is basically like a marriage. And we, we talked through, right. What, what are some of those tactical things that we can do to, to make sure that we are on a positive foot every single day? So we, we right. agreed on, uh, there were, there were three basic things. The first one was every single day when we get in the office, whoever gets in second goes to the other one. We shake each other's hand. We check in, see how we're doing. And just like a very positive note to start the day. Right. It sounds small, but it's, it's actually a really big deal. Massive. Uh, and Neil's actually started going around the entire office and shaking everybody's hand when he comes in, which I think is really cool. Uh, and then another one is we work with his, uh, he's got a personal coach that he's worked with for a number of years. And now we have a, just a monthly meeting where the three of us get together and right. we just talk about Neil's and my relationship and like Perfect. what's going well, what, what are some things we need to think through? And it's just been hugely impactful on that. So it's, it's kind of crazy. We had to, we had to scrape the bottom there, Cameron, to, to really bounce back hard and get where we are now. And it's, it's truly phenomenal. Like the, the growth that we've had as a team between the two of us, as well as our extended leadership team, because we're trying to be vulnerable and, and share things with, with our group and get that filtered out throughout the rest of the organization has led to some really great things. And we continue to grow rapidly as a company. And There's I think it's actually- all a result of that. Yeah, there's actually a model. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's forming, norming, storming, performing. And it's, yeah, yeah. it's a model that teams go through and relationships go through. And the forming is in the initial stages of when you're getting going. And then the the storming is like the fights. And then the, the you know, forming, storming, norming. The norming is when you start building some of what you guys are doing, some of the shaking hand, yeah. like the the date nights, the you're putting some of the systems in place, and then the performing, and then you'll go back again, right? You'll you'll mm-hmm. go through another storming period. But it's, it's, I actually sent you a link as you were explaining this to the CEO event that we're having. We only do an event every, this will be too late for anybody listening. It'll already have happened, but we, we run an event every two to three years. It's the only time we allow CEOs to come into the COO Alliance, but you and Neil should strongly consider attending it. We have uh, David Colby who built the Colby profile with his wife um, and built the entire Colby model is coming to present and then doing breakouts with all the CEO, COO partners that are coming. And then we have one of the top marriage counselors on the planet. She's a marriage counselor to all the Wall Street executives, and she does the high-powered relationship uh, marriage counseling. She's coming, and then I'm going to be there. And it's going to be two and a half days of CEOs and COOs building that high-performing, high-performing relationships. But what you identified is very similar to a marriage, right? I'm sure that you know, it's got to have been easy for you and your wife to raise four kids for 15 years, right? Oh, it's been a, a walk in the park. Yeah, no problem, simple, right? No yeah. fights, no arguments. Every day has been a breeze, no, right? I agree on everything as long as I say yes. <laughs> but so you guys have had to go through similar, similar kind of iterations in your relationship, right? Where you slam the door and you walk out, you come back and say, sorry, you got the makeup sex, you know. Um, you kind of have to figure out those components of the, the CEO, COO relationship. So how did the discussion go so that like, can you, can you open up the kimono a little bit? Like how did you go in thinking you might be quitting and he, he coming in thinking he might be firing you. And how did you get through that in that half hour? So tactically what, yeah, what tactically. I did to start the meeting off. Um, so on, on, on Thursday, the day before I, I cleared my calendar and I, I took a few hours in the afternoon and I just journaled for an extended period, um, just wrote out my thoughts and my feelings, like what, trying to really figure out like, what do I really, really want, 
for the company, for myself, for my family, you know, like it is, is this what, depending on which direction it goes, like what decision is the right one to make. And basically kind of came down to like, if, if I were the way I felt was if I were to resign, it would feel like I was quitting rather than completing. And like, cause I feel like there's so much more that I have to do here, but I wrote a lot out and I started off the meeting with Neil is actually just, I read through pages that I'd written out That's kind of great. explaining my thought process and how I thought about things and what I loved and what, what I didn't love and where I saw the future going with us together. And, and then after that, then he shared his perspective and we both got a little bit emotional. Uh, I mean, it, we're people at the end of the day. And I think that's okay to admit, but it it just turned into a a great discussion. And I mean, we got, we just got down to the brass tacks of it all. I love that you actually included some of the stuff that you loved as well. Right. Oh yeah. It's kind of like, and so the the list of things I loved was like this and the list of things I didn't was like this. Right. Not not that anybody in the podcast can see my hands there, but the first one was a big list. The second one was a short list. <laughs> and it's so it's so important to do that to sit down and make that list because often we end up spinning out of control in any relationship on the stuff that's driving us crazy, and we forget about the gratitude of all the things that we really love about the person or the relationship too. So, it is great that you did that. Um, do you have any signals to let each other know that they're pissing you off? I mean, Carol Burnett. This I'm going to date myself, but she's a, an old school. TV I know Carol. Host. She she used to have this thing back in the 70s at the end of every show. She filmed live every night or once a week, whatever. And and because it was like 10 o'clock at night that she was filming, her kids were already going to sleep. She kind of wiggled her ear as she was saying goodnight to the audience. And the wiggling of the ear was a sign to her children to say, I love you. Um, yeah. Do you have any sign with, with Neil to go, dude, you're pissing me off? Like, do you wiggle your ear or do you touch your nose or do you, do you say... You know, do you have a safe word, like anything that you guys do to kind of make sure the other person knows, oh, shit, we're going off the rails? No, but that's a great idea, Cameron. <laughs> I, I've... What, what, I, what I have learned is if, if we start to sense that conversation is going south, like if we're having a Slack discussion or something, we'll just stop and we'll get, actually get together in person and talk through stuff. And that, that's usually more effective than trying to do it in writing. Yeah, I, have, I have a friend of mine in, the, in their relationship. They, if one of them says the word meatballs, it just stops. They go back. They kind of take a half hour. They reconvene. They they tell each other they love each other, and then they start up again. But yeah. meet, as soon as you say meatballs, it means oh fuck, you're right. Like I know you're pissed, but w- this is escalating for no reason whatsoever. I love it. Right? So I love it. Yeah, hopefully, you guys can find your safe word. And what's your date night with Neil? Do you have like a, a date night or a morning or a midday or a midweek thing that you guys do to? to disconnect and hang out and have fun or. Yep. Yep. We do. So on a weekly basis, we have our, we have a touch point every Wednesday afternoon. Uh, but then on a, on a monthly basis, we try to do something where we get outside the office altogether. So yeah. we'll either go grab drinks somewhere or dinner. Or he'll come out to my place, uh, whatever it is, but just, we try to do something that gets us out of the office. And even like on Wednesdays, what we, when the weather's nicer, what we try to do is actually go outside for a walk while we do it. And I, I've just found the, the walking, talking meetings to be really effective because it, it just, it changes the atmosphere. You're not sitting across the table from one another, uh, which just by its very nature feels somewhat confrontational. 
but you're actually walking alongside one another and sharing well, your perspectives. And you've done your Colby profile. Your Colby A profile is an 8813, which is classic COO that you ask a lot of questions, high fact finder and high follow through, which means you put the playbooks and systems in place before you start a project. What's Neil's uh, Colby profile? Do you know what his four numbers are? I, I don't know his numbers, but... I do know that he's basically the exact opposite of me. Yes. Yeah, so he's, he's, <laughs> my guess is that he's very third, visionary and I'm very integrator. Is his third number very high? I, it would be. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so he, most entrepreneurs have a very high third number, which is quick start, which means that they, they kind of execute now and they plan later. Um, they're winging it. They shoot from the hip. They make it up on the go. They're, they're perpetual motion machines. The reason that the walk and talks, which is what Brian and I, when I was the COO at 1-800-GOT-JUNK and Brian was the CEO, we used to have these walk and talks where we would just, I'd be like, let's go for a walk. Let's walk. In. And we'd say, let's walk and talk. And we would just get out the door and start going, which was, a, we were both very high quick starts. So we had, we just needed to move. And the fact right. that the fact that Neil can go for a walk while talking with you is way better than forcing him to sit at a desk. Yeah, I, so I would tend to agree with that. Yeah, yeah so we've, we've, we've definitely figured out that I move slower on some of that stuff because like he, he's definitely a mile a minute and he comes up with so many ideas and brilliant ideas. Yeah. The problem is we can't do them all at the same time. And so, what we've struggled with is like trying to figure out, all right, how do I, how do I, you know, basically nicely shoot something down uh, or at least say we can't do it right now. And so, yeah, I think so, we've, so I think we've talk, figured that out. So. Talk to me about both of those. First off, how do you tell him that's a great idea, but not now? And then secondly, how do you say, dude, uh, thanks for the idea, but no. How, so let's go with the first one. How do you deal with the not nows? Well, it, I don't know if we've got it mastered, Cameron. Uh, I think the, the, the approach that we've been taking with that is we've actually kind of defined a, a little bit of a process. So if he's got a new idea, uh, we've kind of agreed up front, like here, here are some of the questions that I'm just naturally going to have. So if you can answer these in a document first, that kind yep. of heads off me asking a lot of questions, which feels, feels like a no to him, even though it's not really my intention. It's just more of that fact finding that we're referring right. to. Correct. Yeah. Um, and then also look at the priorities for the team overall and what we're doing. And we do regularly assess, all right, where, where do we need to be spending our time? Uh, we, we, we roughly follow EOS and we do our quarterly planning and set our priorities in that regard. Um, so try and always bring things back to that. And if, and if it's not tied into one of those, then we, we look at, all right, should it replace it or should we hold off on this till the next quarter and revisit at that point in time? Perfect. Um, and like using Asana helps quite a bit too, because we can just set in the task discussion there, we can say, okay, we're, we're not gonna be able to do it right now, but we'll revisit this in six weeks and we set the due date for six weeks and it pops up at the appropriate time. Yeah. I've found that, that giving them the example, giving the entrepreneurial CEO, the example of it's kind of like a vacation. Yeah, let's do it. But we, we can't leave today to go on vacation. Like let's do it in six months. Right. Oh yeah. You're right. Like, yeah, well, well let's do the cruise in six months or yeah, we need to do that house renovation, but not this afternoon. Like let's start that house reno in three months. Cause oh yeah, oh, yeah you're right. So as soon as they realize it's like a renovation or it's like a vacation that we're going to do it, just not right now, they feel safe. And then to your point, it's about asking enough of the questions to catch up with them. So what I like doing is saying, I love that idea. Let me ask you five or six questions to catch up to speed. Let's go walk and talk. So yeah. they go, for, you go for a five minute walk around the building. You get to ask them questions. They don't feel cornered. And they realize you like the idea. You're just trying to catch up with them. 
And then you can go, I love that. Now let's put it on our list and we'll revisit it in a quarter. And they go, okay, at least you understand it. Right. It's right. almost like a, it's like oh, a yeah. game, right? It is. And, and we, we just, we just recognize, like, we just think differently and that's yeah. okay. Yeah. Just figure out how you work together most effectively. Was that part of what was pissing him off about you? Yeah. Uh, it was, some of it was, didn't feel, he didn't feel like I trusted him as much as I should. Because you're asking all the questions. Saying no and asking questions. But from my perspective, I wasn't saying no. I was just asking questions. So right. it, we, I think we've kind of figured and re- figured that out and reconciled it between us now. It's, a, it's honestly, it's one of the big. It's one of the reasons why one of the two speakers at the CEO COO event is is David Colby, is so that the CEOs understand that the role of the fact finder COO is to ask questions, and that doesn't mean we don't like the ideas. It means we need to get the who, what, when, where, why, and how so that we don't have to come back and ask them again. And for the biggest gift he can give you is the gift of time to ask questions. So what I've, what I try to let CEOs do now is I teach them to say, what other questions do you have? Which for you would be amazing. If he would one day say, what other questions? You'd be like, oh my God, he gets me. And then, uh, actually, Neil is very good about that. Is he? Yeah, it, it, it is interesting because Neil actually loves it when people ask him lots of questions. It's just more when I personally ask him questions because of our relationship, that's when he has more concerns, which is perfectly fine and understandable. Okay. And let's go to the next one, which is, yeah, no, we're not doing that. How do you, what's the art that you figured out or, or the system to tell him, thanks for the idea, but no, we're not doing it. And here's why. A lot of times it's helpful to get a second or third perspective on it. So we can look at it from another angle and get um, like Sarah, our head of people ops, or maybe our tech director or somebody else involved and just say, Hey, what do you think of this scenario? And what are some of the other impacts of it? Or what, what do we need to do? Uh, but, but really trying to get to that decision jointly so that it's not, it's not just one person saying no. Uh, mm-hmm. but we all kind of come to the conclusion that, yeah, it's, it's a great idea, but we just, we just can't do it. Either we don't have the funding or the time right now, or, or whatever the case may be. Or maybe it doesn't align with with where we're going as a company. With where we're going, sure. All right, I've got another question. Two more questions. One is, um, how do you manage a technology company and a growth company and four kids under thirteen? How do you organize your time? Because you seem like a good dad who's very present with your kids. And how do you do that? Thank you. I I, I try to be. I don't know that I always meet my own expectations. There, um, taking this position was one of my big steps in that direction, though, because I just I didn't feel like with the travel I was doing previously that I was being the father that I wanted to be. Uh, the The biggest factor here is absolutely my wife. We've been married for coming up on 17 years in October. And there is nothing that I have done that would have happened if it had not been for her. Uh, she's just been my rock throughout. So I, I can't express enough appreciation for her. She, she was a nurse. Uh, I guess technically probably still is a, a nurse. But she, we made the decision together that she would stop working before our third child was born. Uh, so she stayed home and helped raise the children. Um, and then we also have her mom that lives with us. Uh, so we've actually got seven people in my house. And for a while, we had her grandmother that lived with us too. So we had four generations uh, under our roof. But we, we've got a good family support system. And a big part of the reason why we live right here where we do is because all of her extended family, for the most part, is right in the local area. My family is all in Nebraska and we, we get together regularly. So 
it was really important to us for the kids to grow up close to their grandparents and their cousins. Uh, cause we, we used to live out in Washington, DC, and then we moved back here, uh, for those very reasons. Good feel. In, in terms of, like, oh, sorry. Yeah. It seems like when you keep that as the kind of the center, the, the, the focal point, everything else just works out from there. It, yeah, it, it really does. All right, the other go- big part is just time management in general. Like I, I'm constantly looking for ways to improve how efficient I am with things or doing things or prioritizing work uh, or life um, and just making sure that set priorities accordingly, eat the frog first, things like that. Um, it's a continuing journey, but I've, I've, I've done a couple things that I think have had a really positive impact on my life, which were about seven years ago, basically made the decision to stop watching TV. And I, wow. I still watch you know, movies with my kids on Friday yeah. nights and, and yeah. whatnot, but I haven't watched a television show in like seven years. And I think just cutting that out, it was a huge, huge time saver. Yeah. And it's opened, opened up so much of my calendar to do other things that I really enjoy doing. What you're working around the prioritization. It's one of the modules of my Invest in Your Leaders course is time management. I'm blown away by how few people have actually ever been trained, even in the basics of time management, priority management. It's kind of astounding. All right, let's go back to the 22-year-old Derek Knorr. What advice would you give yourself at 22 that maybe you know you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known back then? So Neil will actually laugh when he hears this one, but it would be make decisions faster. Uh, which is, I guess, probably telling because of my personality, but, but there've been a few different things over the course of my life and career where I had opportunities to either invest in something or do something a little bit differently. And I kind of hemmed and hawed on it. Uh, and the opportunity passed. And then in retrospect, I'm like, damn, that was a big deal. I should have jumped all over that at the time. So it just seizing the, seizing the moment a little bit. Well, it's hard because your natural your natural profile is again that, that high fact finder and that high follow through of putting the systems in place. It doesn't lead itself to to make decisions quickly. It's good that you recognize it and you'll work on it. Derek Kinor, the COO for Spirius, really appreciate the time that you spent with us today. Thanks so much for sharing with us on the Second Command podcast. Thanks, Cameron. Have a good one. Appreciate it. You too. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.